Hey everybody, this is Doug Platts and you're listening to the Custom Made Podcast. Each week I talk with digital transformation leaders within enterprise organizations and thought leaders within the custom technology space. My goal is to shine a spotlight on the work that is happening in enterprise organizations who are changing and the leaders who are driving that change. If you haven't already, be sure to hit subscribe and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and everywhere else you listen to Custom Made. It helps other listeners find us, and I'd love to hear what you think. You can also tweet me at Doug Platts with any feedback, questions, and potential topics. This week, I'm excited to be sitting down with technologist, musician, and public speaker Christopher O'Donnell, Senior Vice President of Product at HubSpot. HubSpot offers a full platform of marketing, sales, customer service, and CRM software, plus the methodology, resources, and support to help businesses grow better. Christopher has built dozens of web and mobile products, ranging from language learning for the U.S. military to the most popular free CRM product in the world, recorded dozens of albums across a variety of musical genres, and spoken to audiences of over 10,000 people. His role as SVP of product at HubSpot, a public tech company, makes him a staple in the product management community and a frequent lecturer at MIT Sloan and major corporations. Outside of his day job, Christopher spends his time as songwriter and guitarist for the band The Providers, who release music on a regular basis. Be sure to check them out at www.theproviders.com. During this week's episode, Christopher and I are discussing the challenges that come with scaling a company from a startup to a large enterprise organization, from managing multiple product offerings to integrating acquisitions to cultural shifts that need to be planned for. We go into detail on how HubSpot grew from $50 million in annual revenue to 10 times that amount and how it has continued to incubate new product offerings and successfully integrate them back into the core business. Another key aspect of HubSpot's growth has been the following and loyalty it has built around its brand. A big catalyst for this is the annual inbound conference that is hosted in Boston. We explore the importance of this and the impact it has had on product development and product communication. And so without further ado, here is Christopher O'Donnell. Doug, thank you so much for, for having us on, and thanks for coming and speaking at Inbound and, uh, you know, being a, a customer and supporter of HubSpot. We, we appreciate the support, but uh, thanks very much for the opportunity to be on with your listeners on CustomAid. And for our listeners, uh, I think it would be great if you could just give a little bit of an overview of your journey to HubSpot, because HubSpot and your journey there sure. is where I want to really dig in today. But tell us about your journey to there, how you got there. Yeah, sure. So uh, I was born in 1981. No, I, I won't give you the, the whole life story. But I'm, I'm sort of, I have a kind of a funny background. My background, since I was a little kid, I've been involved in music and technology, basically started uh, coding and, and building little computer programs at a pretty early age, 10 or 11 years old, and had that thread through my whole career up through college, through, um, you know, making websites for my friends and doing that a little bit commercially into being a marketer. And as a marketer, uh, I, I kind of fell into this technical marketing thing early in my career. That was my first job. That led me to product management, which I just absolutely loved from, from the get-go, you know, working with engineers and designers and helping build a vision uh, that creative people can go and, and execute on and build something from nothing. So from there, I got in, involved in various different startups and kind of hacking, building, creating on my own, which has sort of been the, the way that I've spent my time, you know, my whole life. That brought me into uh, one particular Series A startup called Performable, which was then acquired by HubSpot in 2011. And I came into HubSpot that way and have been here eight years and still loving it. And so where was HubSpot when you joined? So it, it was obviously at a state where it was starting to acquire 
relevant product product offerings to continue to bolster its product offerings and its its st- stance in the in the highly competitive space of marketing, sales, technology, CRM platforms. Uh, what was it like when you first joined? And and let's start to dig into how where where you are today and and the and the messy middle in between. Yeah, absolutely. Well, when I got here, the remarkable uh, achievement was really around um, sales and marketing and, and kind of invent, you know, HubSpot had invented this idea of inbound marketing um, and content marketing and making your your whole business, your whole uh, brand, a voice and a magnet that draws people in and beginning the sales and marketing conversation from that position of trust and, and authority. Uh, and so our own sales and marketing teams were doing really, really well. And the product was very, very popular um, and needed a, a little bit of replatforming to really scale to the next, you know, generation and, and move move slightly up market to these mid sized companies and execute on this very broad vision that the founders had, that the product team had. And so the acquisition was a way to kind of accelerate uh, accelerate that movement. So it was it was hard early on. You know, it was hard. It was sort of changing process and changing culture and changing technology and rewriting stuff. Uh, it was it was very interesting. A lot of kind of change management, um, mission management, and of course all the fun, uh, gritty details on the technology side of building a brand new product. Um, really, while people were were using one current generation of the product, building the next generation of the product at the same time. So that that was very messy, very fun, very challenging, um, and that that kind of brought me to around the 2013 timeframe. And I branched off um, from the, the marketing product, which was our first product, to build a second line of business from scratch, really, uh, based on some theses we had in the market and some things we were seeing in the market, our own use of CRM and sales tools internally, and, of course, the vision of Brian and Darmesh, our founders. They had this great, great idea to go into the sales space and asked me to kind of start thinking about it. So I started working on that in 2013 and built a product line that is now HubSpot Sales and CRM. Um, and uh, in 2016, I moved into a role where I took stewardship of the product management and UX practice across uh, across the whole product. Um, and from there, we delivered a third uh, product line, uh, the HubSpot Service Hub, and we're kind of just learning every day from there. So we, we have a team of about... Um, 160 in product and design right now, and then about 400 engineers that uh, that work alongside us. The engineers are the ones who really matter. Let's be honest. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, no, it's it's been fascinating, you know, and and I I feel like we're still on a daily basis doing things that we've never done before. Great leadership challenges, great maker challenges, technology challenges. It it just gets more and more fun. And so. You are almost at the other end of the spectrum as an as an organization of you are a product led company, customer centric organization, very technology driven organization, using that to differentiate and empower the people that work there, the brand that you've built. A lot of times we're talking with on custom made companies that are these these fifty, hundred plus year old organizations that are trying to become that, trying to become product centric, trying to move away from a very uh old older way of technology development whether that's waterfall or whatever it might be so how do you avoid becoming 
that? How do you avoid becoming something that could be disrupted in its own way or obsolete? How do you make sure that as you've grown to be multinational, multiple product offerings, how do you make sure that that still stays successful and cutting edge? Well, you know, this this idea of disruption obviously coming from Clay Christensen uh, in The Innovator's Dilemma. And the point he makes in there that I, I think is really important to come back to is that companies become the way that you describe because management is totally competent. Not because they're incompetent, but because they're competent. Uh, because they're creating shareholder value and they are getting wallet share, they are getting customer uh, renewals, they are gaining more customers in their, in their chosen market, and they're executing on the job they have been asked to do. That's what gets companies into that situation where they can be disrupted, which is really fascinating. It's like, okay, so as, as managers, we do the right thing and yet create this enormous existential risk to the business because we can't move as quickly and we can't you know, throw the fish back in the water after catching it and start over. And so that becomes an entry point to answer your question. If you believe Clay Christensen that th- this happens because we're competent managers, then <laughs> we, we must start to look for things that look a bit unusual um, and ways of, of wrapping into our portfolio and wrapping into our culture things that are not obvious and may even seem slightly insane or will have, you know, some broad pushback from other competent managers. You know, this idea of the the antibodies swarming around the infected cell. Well, you, you're going to need some sort of infected cell. You're going to need some alternate motion. Um, and from there, you know, you can start to have the conversation that, that, you know, and continue the conversation that Clay Christensen has there around, well, do you want to innovate through M&A? You know, that's, that's one way of doing it. You can buy a company that's doing something interesting and perhaps you're protecting your flank from being disrupted if that particular company was arguably a threat to disrupt you. And you have the luxury of leaving their financials and their, you know, their whole operational structure, their goals, their leadership, their culture separate. Uh, and, and continue to kind of push forward. I think Instagram is a good example of that with Facebook, where Instagram was an existential threat and was left separate um, and then started to incrementally take advantage of some of what Facebook had to offer, whether it was infrastructure, hiring, you know, and so forth, and be able to scale and go faster and ultimately make more money over time. But I, I think that's a, a really good example of that. Not that, by the way, Facebook has any problem um, innovating uh, from a technology perspective, but that, but that was a way to kind of completely change the, the sort of S curve that they were on. Um, or you can do a, a skunk works, you know, you can carve off part of the team to be protected. And as Christensen says, the, the really critical thing there is that the financial goals are distinct mm-hmm. and, and you have to fight to keep that skunk works separate because as it starts to succeed, all of these competent managers are going to walk by and say, this seems really interesting. I can go sell that to all my customers, you know, come over here. And you have to actually keep that, that you know, kind of anti-pattern from happening until it's mature enough to, to really be able to do something with, which is essentially the model that we used when I went to do the sales products. We did a different brand. It was a different team. It was a different tech stack. It was completely disconnected essentially from the company other than 
um, we were on the same payroll and we were in the same facilities. And then over time, yeah. we started, you know, we started to, you know, refunctionally align and roll it back into the company. We had a, a period where we sort of acquired the start, the, the skunk works as though we were acquiring an external company. And then the third way is to, is to change the culture, you know, and to try to find ways of, as managers, maintaining financial competency while also rolling in to the core culture, innovation, uh, strategic bets, uh, multiple time horizons for your planning and for your roadmap. And, you know, I, I, I kind of like that one too. I, I like all these models. Aspirationally, the third one is, is most appealing to me because being in a skunk works is fun, but there are so many disadvantages and it's very painful to roll them back into. It's both painful to keep them separate and painful to roll them back in. And you can also end up in a situation, and I, I, I see this happening at a lot of these, uh, I suspect the companies that, that your listeners um, lead, where you have the core efforts and then you have this sort of innovation thing. And there's, you know, another floor of the building that has whiteboards and beanbags and, you know, nicer coffee. And that's where the innovation happens. Um, and at HubSpot, we really don't want that. You know, we, we've, we've fought this idea of having a big labs group largely because it sends the message to the rest of the team. Well, that's not our job. Our job is not to innovate. Our job is to just, you know, incrementally make a little bit of progress. When in reality, we think that the core teams are, you know, the most experienced, the, uh, you know, have the best tooling. They know how to go through the emotional hardship of trying something, failing, sunsetting it, pivoting, you know, and so the core senior people are the people that we want innovating and we want to encourage them to do that. So I, I would say that, that I started on the first one by being a company that was acquired and we tried to keep that product running and learned that we really needed to fold in and rewrite. And then I did the second thing, which was the skunk works really interesting. Selfishly, I'm really glad I, I got to have that experience. I think the company is reasonably happy that we had that experience. We learned a ton. Um, but I wouldn't be dying to do that again. And now sort of on the third one of how do we have a set of missions for the company and for each individual person on the team so that they can sort of see, okay, here's the short, short term, you know, McKinsey might say horizon one world that we're working on in year. And then here's the stuff that's more strategic that maybe has a three year return. And then here's this third horizon that um, we don't even know when there's going to be a return on it you know, and, and have some incremental bets in each of those three buckets. I think that's kind of the goal. It's really interesting how you broke those apart. And I, and I want to pick it, dig into those just a little bit. One, The first one, and we've had the head of innovation of Southwest Airlines on our show before, and she talked about how they they captured ideas for innovation from all parts of the organization because it's those that are on the front line that see a slightly different, better, more optimized way of doing things. And so I was curious, do you have a medium or a pr uh, process which does, doesn't really align with innovation, but do you have a way to capture these ideas or, or for people to bring those ideas to you and then to evaluate them, uh, prioritize them? Yes, absolutely. So I'll answer it in, in two parts. The first part is very, is straightforward, but has taken a long time to um, to develop operationally. Essentially, every department, every customer facing department, um, whether it's you know sales or service support, 
even our own internal use of the products uh, from our marketing team and our sales ops team, they have structured mechanisms to give the product team, you know, both aggregate and primary source customer driven information. So we know on the if you're a product manager and, and your product is the reason that customers are calling in the most often with the longest, hairiest support calls. Um, with the highest likelihood of having a repeat issue on that same question, you know, you know that you're number one on that list and all of your friends know. And and that creates this sort of self-healing mechanism where we just collect the data and we all look at the data together and we don't need much more of a process. Of course, we spot check. And, uh, you know, just recently, uh, Brian Halligan, our CEO, wrote me and a product manager who had, you know, the, one such issue and said, what's our, do we have a good plan around this? And the good news is we did. We, we, we had a good plan. And actually in the, the weeks that came after that, oh boy, we redesigned this, you know, error screen and we redesigned this thing, and we redesigned this thing. And now the customer experience is way better and we could see the call volume go down. So those kinds of feedback loops in a culture of accountability and transparency without finger pointing, you know, without uh, anything other than, hey, look, this is this is where we are. These are the challenges we have. Let's band together and, and come up with a good plan. So we have a version of that for, you know, deals close loss. We have a version of that for account management. And we have very, you know, fine-grained ideas and an opportunity also for the people in those organizations to put their thumbs on the scale and say, hey, look, you know, here's the one that really matters. And here's the data behind it. Here's our opinion on it. And here's the primary source material. And here are the customers that you guys can go talk to to, to validate it. So that kind of culture um, has taken, you know, years to build, but is, is tight. You know, that's a tight operational part of the culture that's very popular. The, the second thing is a bit more fun and lightweight, but we use, uh, we use Slack at HubSpot and we have a Slack channel that just posts every net promoter score piece of feedback. You know, the how likely are you to recommend HubSpot to a friend? And then the, you know, the, the open-ended response that people put in. And we have 900 people in that channel. So every, I'm actually, I'm, I'm, I happen to have it in front of me right now. We have, yeah, 886 people in this channel. And every time somebody, one of our customers writes uh, qualitative piece of qualitative feedback. We see it, we discuss it, we see the context around it. Where are they? Who are they? What products do they have? Um, you know, all sorts of interesting data around the context of what they're trying to do. And the account manager is CC'd in and then product managers hop in and often, you know, we'll reach out to that customer and set up a call and go deeper and report back onto that thread. Hey, here's, here's kind of what's going on. That's just a wonderful atmosphere. You know, it's not, and, and we do have process around it and we do have, okay, uh, here's our net promoter score readout and here's the accountability around this stuff and here are the trends and the charts. Yes, we, we do all that stuff. But what's actually much more interesting is the, just the atmosphere that we're all reading this stuff. And so from a product management perspective, it's the greatest thing in the world because we, we go to say, hey, we're going to make a big bet in, you know, the, this feature area X and everybody in the company goes, boy, that makes sense. <laughs> you know, and sure we have charts and we have financial projections and all that stuff, but that stuff doesn't matter as much as just the atmosphere around a, a, a shared awareness 
a strategic mindset and a shared awareness uh, of what customers are experiencing. And where innovation for us comes out of that is when we get pushed really hard in a particular area, we may say, okay, you know, let's do something big here. Let's take 10 people and really try to bend the curve on this product or this skew or this experience, you know, this part of the customer journey. It could be any of these things. And then we'll, you know, run off and start to have some fun trying to do something that is a, a step function different. But, you know, again, it's, it's, it's all about everybody consuming this customer data uh, as uniformly as possible and, and creating just sort of the aura in the air of what needs to happen for the customer's benefit. And then the financial stuff kind of solves itself, we hope, um, you know, coming out of it. But I, I think that's a reasonably good thesis. If you're adding value, if you're staying very customer-driven, the financial side will, will you know, be positive. That's really interesting. That's like your own immediate user testing, um, uh, kind of um, being able to kind of get a pulse of the, not just the organization, but what they're hearing from their custom, customers as well. The other area I wanted you to just touch on a little bit was around the time horizons piece. What I've observed um, through the conversations I've had on custom-made and the work that we do here at Dialexa, it feels like the time horizon in the product technology space for individuals can sometimes feel relatively short, a few years and then they've moved on or up or wherever it might be. And so how do you how do you manage that? How do you get buy-in for maybe multi-year product strategies um, and kind of make sure that, that people do allow that breathing room to, to develop a product offering and really evaluate its, uh, its, its success and growth? It's a great question. I think we um, were okay at it. I, I think the the truth of the culture is that we're pretty good at it in terms of the transparency to the company of, hey, this is a three-year mission and here's where we are in this arc. We could be better. I could be a lot better at that communication. We were probably over-indexed on in-year communication. We, we have the, the big inbound event in September where we talk about lots of exciting product stuff. And so that ends up being a meaningful you know mile marker that, that people are, are running toward. And this idea of um, it, it declaratively charting out three-year, five-year missions is not yet really part of our operating system, other than we may decide not to make something a huge in-year priority, but then we leave it a little unclear what the, you know, what the plan is. And I, I think we could be better there. The good news is our teams do have the air cover to do that multi-year work. You know, whether it's replatforming, whether it's um, performance improvements or uh, developer API exposure, that's a big one now for us. We want to open up the whole, you know, the whole product as much as we possibly can to the developer ecosystem. This is a big, challenging cross-team thing that's going to take several years. And we are making, I would say, terrific progress on it. We opened up 400 endpoints last year and opened up hundreds again this year already. Um, and, And so it's going well. But we didn't say this is an explicit five-year kind of mission. It just is something that has clear ownership. Uh, and as a default, you know, that works very well in our culture. We have a, a, our product values, which are explicit, in which we list very explicitly. And one of those values is think like an owner. And so what does that mean? Well, it means, you know, if you're walking by a candy wrapper or a cup that's on the floor, Pick it up, throw it away. 
you know, uh, think of it as something that you own. Don't think of it as somebody else's problem and translate that all the way down into the code, into, you know, customer interactions, everything, I mean, really own it. And so that is a, a reasonable model too. So in, in the case of the developer APIs, we don't have an, a Gantt chart. We don't have an explicit, um, you know, time horizon sequence here. But what we do have, we have an owner. And we have one senior engineering lead who, you know, is 100% focused on this. And we got up in front of the entire broader team and said, if this fella asks you to do anything, you should do it (laughs) because he's on a real mission here. And, you know, it's not going to happen all at once. But when he comes and taps you on the shoulder, take the coffee meeting and, and write the code he's talking to you about. And everybody goes, hey, that's pretty cool. That sounds good. And so he actually has agency in air cover now. And we might bring him in to the executive team, you know, quarterly or once a year or every other year. Um, and we welcome that. You know, anytime the company is curious what we're up to, we'll say, oh, sure. You know, we'll, we'll do demos. We'll come in. We'll present. We'll share, you know, very transparently where we are. Um, and, you know, along with ownership, being on the hook for progress, being on the hook for transparency, builds trust with the rest of the company where they say, you know, okay, maybe we're, maybe we can live with not knowing exactly what's going to come out next July 15th, you know, or what the quarterly, you know, uh, set of features is going to be two years from now. We don't know that. We have no idea. We have none. Um, but we do know it's going to be good. And we know that next month we're going to show an enormous amount of progress. And even today we're going to show an enormous amount of progress. And when you have that ownership culture, you know, your people start coming to you with ideas and, and the teams actually are pushing the progress forward. And that changes the, the whole leadership dynamic where you're not pushing your teams to go execute on initiatives. You're educating them about what the priorities are, giving them all of the backstory and then letting them come back to you and say, here's what we're going to need. Hey, if you're serious about initiative X, Mr. Leader, Mrs. Leader, whoever it may be, if you're serious about this and you want to put your money where your mouth is, this is what our team is going to need to do. Are you prepared to back us on that? And we go, hey, that sounds really great. Um, and, and, and so that sort of changes the whole, uh, the whole dynamic. And, and I think that dynamic does pull you through multi-year arcs, even if we're not very good at um, declaratively saying what those, what those arcs are. So HubSpot's a, a large organization, multinational, multi-office uh, across the U.S., around the world. Um, but you're also a technology company at your heart and a product company. And so the the modern methods that are today associated with successful product development from design thinking to agile to ra- rapid prototyping, I'm sure they're inherent to, to what you do and how you build. But I'm curious, what advice would you give to an organization that was wanting to start to bring these new methods into their into their business, into their, whether it's their IT organization, their product development organization, to, to allow them to have a chance to flourish and not die because they didn't get enough air and, um, you know, opportunity to be successful and maybe change the ways of working in these large organizations. So what advice do you have for, for large organizations to bring in these new product development methods? Yeah, I think the biggest... The biggest first shift happens with leadership and is a shift from fear to trust. And that sounds very fuzzy and very touchy-feely, and I'll try to make it more concrete. 
you're going to have a really hard time innovating if people can't try things. You know, that's sort of a, that's sort of a tautology. That's sort of true by default. If you're going to, if you want to do risky things, you need an environment where you can take risks. You know, we can kind of agree on that, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you need people who are going to become passionate and deeply knowledgeable about this risky area that you want to see some innovation in. So then from a leadership perspective, what's your relationship to those people? You know, uh, are these people who are doing work for you so that you can go and, and bring it to some committee to, you know, gain accolades and, you know, show how, how, you know, talented you are? Or are these people who you are investing in and shielding and giving the air cover and the time so that they can try four or five, six different things, so that they can work with different people, so that they can be honest with you about what's going well and not going well. How do you create uh, an environment of safety so that people actually can take these risks? This is the ugly part about innovation, is that your, your team will fail. If you are actually innovating, your team will fail along the way. So what happens when your team fails? That's where I would start. What's the environment there? How do you, what, what's your, what's your pose as a leader? And I think over time, what you see is the more that you give the credit away, the more that you lift those people up, the more that you take a project that you as a leader could do and get a lot of credit for and find someone to invest in and give them that project and then actually become a coach, you know? What happens is you start developing these pockets of emergent leadership. And these pockets of emergent leadership, as they grow up and as they become more autonomous and as they become more psychologically safe, as they become more ready to take risks in ways that are appropriate for the company, um, they push you and they push you up and they start coming to you saying, this is what we need. You know, not what do you want me to do next, but here's where we're going. This is what we're going to do. It means having conversations with your boss as a leader where you say, you know, look, it, we're going to need time. This is my fault. You know, you got to take the, take the blame and give the credit away. Um, and, and I think that that's tough to do, you know, and I haven't worked at, at organizations larger than HubSpot, but, you know, I've, I've spoken with folks at hundreds of them. And that does seem to be a big cultural thing of, you know, kind of covering your butt. Um, and so that, that's really the shift. How do you, how do you hire people that you're willing to, to shield and give room to fail, actually support them when they fail, which by the way, is really hard because as you're trying to innovate, as your teams fail, it's psychologically and emotionally very difficult for them. But how do you, you know, kind of bring them forward and keep their confidence developing give them the political air cover that they need to try these things. And then as things start to work, sing their praises and lift the team up and let the team really, you know, generate that trust and generate that, that kind of credit from the larger company. And as you repeat that process, you'll start to see the whole thing is pushing you as a leader forward and it's starting to push the company forward uh, as well. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think about how you talked earlier about how you, uh, developed the the sales product offering within HubSpot and that Skunk Works team, and how it had its own 
relevant technology stack and it didn't start with well what do we use today but more what is the right thing to be successful or at least what we assume at this point and then go from there and then that air cover around it there's a different set of goals targets PL for this new product offering than the rest of the business because it needs that time to grow and evolve and be competitive in its own right just like a startup wrapped in an enterprise no, and, and along the way, you know, you're going to get the questions from, again, competent managers across the business. Why are we writing throwaway code? Why are we not doing this on our stack? Why are we not, you know, why are we giving this thing away for free? Why is this so inexpensive? You know, I could be selling this to all of my customers. We could be doing this a better way. And you basically have to say, look, we're optimizing for something very different here. Um, and, and, Again, it comes down to promises kept and the trust that you have with the company uh, that you are ultimately going to deliver, even though it seems very counterintuitive the way that you're approaching it. That's what's really tough about the Skunk Works is it looks so insane (laughs) to everybody else in the business that you're doing it. Um, And for very good reasons. It's not like they don't get it. It just makes sense. If you're the head of North America sales and there's this, you know, floor of the building that's building this really interesting new product, you want to sell the thing to your leads in North America. I mean, it's, it's a very, very, you know, sane thing. Um, And you got to find a way to break that with the skunk works, which is very hard. It's, that's awesome. And and I'd love with, with your final thoughts to talk about, to talk about inbound and the loyalty that, that following creates and what that means for subsequent products uh, and subsequent offerings that HubSpot builds. But also we see this time and again with Apple, with Microsoft, as they do these product launches, as they build these communities. But I don't want to say communities on steroids. It's more than just what most organizations think when, when a community is mentioned. How do you create that following? How do you create that excitement every year around what's new, what's coming? Well, I mean, for us, we, we, practice what we preach here. There's a, a woman named Kim Darling, who's the vice president of Inbound, and it's really her show. You know, she, she has an enormous amount of trust from the company. She has so many promises kept, so much transparency around how the event goes, um, so much learning from year to year. And that, that, I think, is what really makes it a special event, is that it's not you know, designed by committee, there's a very strong perspective and it kind of comes from the founders and it comes through Kim and her own perspective. Um, and you know, her job is to make that community that comes together every September in Boston. Um, if you guys are curious, go to inbound.com and you can learn all about it. We have amazing speakers this year and every year. Uh, but you know, it's her crown jewel and she just fights for it to be the absolute best it could possibly be. Um, and I'm just amazed by that, you know, the level of extreme ownership that she takes. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm lucky enough to speak at the, at the event, um, each year and I'm amazed, you know, I show up to speak and she's there in the green room and saying, okay, is everything all right? Are you set? Are you squared away? And of course she has a million other things going on, but her attention to detail on every front is really, is really special. And what we get out of that is something larger than the company. It's not the HubSpot conference. It is, you know, we're not trying to be Dreamforce. We're not trying to be uh, something like that. Kim, once she looks at, you know, South by Southwest, she looks at these experiences and communities um, that come together that do amazing creative things uh, for the purpose of the community. It's not a financial outcome that, that we're after. We spend money on it. We, do, we don't make money on it. So I, I think that that's really important. Um, 
and one of the few self-promotional things that we do at it is, is really my talk where we talk about the products. So I, th- I, I think to answer your question, that's really what it is, is, you know, you have this extreme ownership in making an amazing experience and just obsessing about that with this tiny little asterisk in a sense, which is, oh, and for 45 minutes, we're going to talk about the products that are coming out in, we hope, a really fun, exciting way that people want. You know, people do want to see what we're up to. Uh, otherwise, I'd be, you know, I'd be, I'd be out of that job. Um, so I, I think that that's really what it is. It's not, hey, come to Boston for three days to hear about what we're doing. It's come to Boston and see speakers from, you know, in past years, we've had Michelle Obama, we've had Serena Williams, we've had Martha Stewart, we've had all kinds of really interesting folks come and share their experiences and their perspective on life. Uh, and also marketing and sales and service and these other things, but it's just a great experience. It's setting that frame and then within that frame, taking a few minutes to say, hey, this is what we're up to as a company. People are really, really open to it, you know, and it, it sets just a great tone and a great vibe and it gets people rooting for you, which is a lot of fun. Um, you know, the, w- when I do my talk, it's, it's amazing to see 10,000 people in the audience who are clapping and cheering and genuinely excited to see us building stuff. And I've been to a lot of product conferences and it's usually, you know, I have to say it's usually a bit quieter. Um, and so, so I, you know, a lot of credit to the inbound team and to Kim for, for that culture and the the standards that they set and hold themselves to. It's, it's really remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think just the vibe there, uh, and, and as you mentioned before, it's more than HubSpot. It's more than marketing. It's more than sales. It, it is creating that. It's almost like an inspirational event of which these components align with how you feel inspired in your work, um, whatever that might be. And here are some of the tools of the trade that can help support that and grow that. And this is where you're going as a brand and as an organization as well, which I love. And I think that's, you know, as the importance of brand, I feel like it's coming much more into the forefront of conversations for organizations versus, okay, are you doing the job for me? Um, and it becomes a commoditized conversation. Um, that is something that, again, empowers individuals, organizations, allows you to attract the right talent that then allows you to create the next new exciting product or next new exciting offering as well. Mm, I couldn't agree more. I think you nailed it. So final, I, I, wanna, I want you to give you a final piece of advice to our listeners, um, leaders within organizations who are trying to adopt new product development, uh, ways of working, new methodologies that are trying to turn their companies into product-centric, customer-centric organizations. If you were to give these leaders of these organizations um, a piece of advice, what, what would it be? It, without a question, it would be to make the voice of the customer cool. You know, uh, do whatever you need to do to, to get a shared understanding of the customer experience. And there are a lot of ways to do that. It's, you know, um, putting customer quotes on TVs. It's beginning and ending your presentations to your teams with customer stories, names, faces, places, people, experiences. You know, as a leader, that needs to just be emanating from you and it needs to become whatever, whatever the mechanism is that's appropriate for your organization. It needs to become the cool thing to do and the cool default. Um, and, and really in people's body language, the way they describe things, the way they write memos, the way that they present decks, make it really cool to see the customer and, be speaking through the voice of the customer in everything that you can do, which presumably as long as you have a customer, 
that's an option. You know, you can always get that primary source material and hear it from the customer and lift that up. Um, you know, take it, take one team member and make them full time on nothing except voice of the customer. Uh, then from there, once that's cool, the team starts solving for, well, Hey, you know, we got to work a little bit differently if we're going to be taking this kind of feedback. No, I love it. I love it. And there's that obvious statement in there. If you don't have a customer, then maybe you're in the wrong line of business and you need to reevaluate that whole thing. Um, But I love it. I think that pushing that to the forefront and allowing that to be as inspirational as possible is, is absolutely key. So Christopher, thanks for joining us this week. This has been a really great conversation. Doug, thank you so much for having us. And uh, I hope to see you at Inbound and I hope to uh, do this again sometime. It was wonderful having a conversation with you. 